This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. And I'm Jarrett Murphy from City Limits. And Ben, uh, Wednesday night we have really the first kind of official event of the 2017 mayoral campaign, the primary debate among the Democrats. Um, when it comes to the moment when the candidates take the stage, what kind of things are you going to be looking for? Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, it's Sal Albanese against Mayor de Blasio and a fascinating story uh, just in terms of the two, the two of them and their relationship. Uh, I don't think too many people who watched the 2013 campaign when Albanese was sort of scrapping in this really crowded field with Wiener and Quinn and Thompson and Lou. You know, I don't think too many of us thought after that that we'd be seeing Albanese versus de Blasio in 2017. Um, so I'm sort of interested in how the, the two of them are just interacting. Um, but one of the biggest things I'm watching for is can Sal Albanese make a really compelling case about why he should be mayor and why he'd be the better mayor? Uh, how about you? Yeah, I'll be interested in whether Albanese, as you say, can move beyond kind of the critique of de Blasio, which he's very good at. Pretty good, yeah. Talking about uh, what he wants to do as mayor. And on the flip side, you know, de Blasio's people, his aides and defenders have said that the reason why he has looked uh, more vulnerable than you might expect, the reason why he's not more popular than you'd expect, is because he hasn't yet had the chance to make the case about what he's done and what he plans to do. And now is his chance to really officially begin making that case. Right. What's interesting about this debate, and fairly rare among primary debates in my memory, is to have uh, mano y mano. Mm. You know, typically that happened in 2009 with Avella and Thompson, but usually it's a crowded field of people, three or four or five people at the microphone for a primary debate. Here you have a fairly early debate, one-on-one, um, -on -one, which gives Albanese the chance to, to land some blows and if not to help himself out, certainly create some storylines for the election that goes uh, beyond September 12th, quite frankly. Right, and I think, right, it's interesting. I mean, Albanese is actually going to be on the general election ballot line, so he's got sort of a long view here maybe, I guess. I mean, he has admitted that he needs, you know, momentum to build. He raised about, he's raised about $200,000. He spent most of it to make the threshold for the debate, and we should talk in a minute about those thresholds and who's participating. Um, but Albanese needs a break. He needs a moment. He needs something, right? He needs the mayor to look not very mayoral. He needs the mayor to make a big mistake. Bill de Blasio is very uninclined to do that. He's, he, you know, is very careful when he's focused. He's very on message. He comes from, you know, that uh, campaign operative background of his. He might come across as sort of condescending or something, but that's the case all the time. So I don't think that's going to count as a major flub. Albanese needs to maybe make a splash with a, you know, as I'm writing in a debate preview piece, you know, he needs to say something that really gets some media attention and some attention, come up with a new big idea. Um, you know, his campaign platform is, is there, but it's not very splashy. It's not especially interesting. He's basically saying, this guy's been a bad mayor and I would be a better mayor. Here's a few reasons why. He needs to get some excitement going. Right. I mean, I think generally candidate debates, the way they matter is not so much someone winning, but someone losing them, right? Someone making a big flub, um, you know, saying something that's off color or something that's factually ridiculous. Um, so I think that's one of the things people look for. De Blasio, is, in my recollection from 2013 and earlier, is that he's not, you know, he's not a knockout debater, but he's a good defensive boxer and doesn't make big mistakes and, you know, sticks to message and is very hard to shake off that. Um, you know, I think he also does well in settings where 
Um, there's a fairly small number of people interacting with him. He's better in the Errol Lewis, Brian Lehrer sit-downs than he is in the press conference with a lot yes. of different people. So a lot of focus here. Um, do we know much about how de Blasio is prepping for this? Yeah, I got some info. Well, he, I mean, he said a few things at a press conference the other day, um, and I got some information just a little bit from his campaign as I was asking. Of course, Sal Albanese was much more available to me than Bill de Blasio was. I talked to Sal himself about his preparations, whereas I had the mayor's spokesperson. Uh, but the mayor's spokesperson said he has indeed been doing prep sessions, as the mayor said. Um, she said that at least through Monday, he hadn't really done like a mock debate. He had more just been practicing his responses on certain topics and then going over what are the key elements you left out. Did you leave out a key piece of your accomplishments on education that you should make sure to say, that type of stuff. So he's sort of practicing his talking points. One of the things I wrote in my preview piece too is, you know, the mayor almost always gets to sort of control the flow of the conversation, right? At press conferences, he can sort of cut off reporters and move along. On Brian Lehrer or with Errol Lewis, he can sort of talk for as long as he wants answering a question, even though they will interrupt him. But, you know, he sort of has his space. Here, there's going to be very timed segments, you know, 90 seconds, a minute, 30-second rebuttal. And so he needs to be more prepared than he usually is because he can be very long-winded. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and obviously Albanese is, has apparently been mock debating with David Eisenbach, yes. uh, who is. You know, a, I was going to uh, break that news until and then, then they the put it out there for everybody. Just put it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Damn it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so w- one thing that we've alluded to before is that there are five Democrats on the primary ballot. Only two of them will actually be on the stage, on the stage yeah. uh, Wednesday night. Um, and that obviously has created uh, something of a mini controversy involving only one of the other potential in, in people, uh, which is uh, candidate Tolkien. Um, what yeah. do you think of that uh, that episode? I mean, Mike Tolkien, we've actually written a couple articles about his campaign or his campaign finance situation because it's so unique. He claimed $5 million in in-kind contributions, um, which is sort of unheard of. Um, attributed them to brands that he had created and was lending the campaign to make money for the campaign. I haven't met Mike Tolkien personally. We've exchanged some emails. Something seems a little bit off there. He seems to be 32, successful sort of entrepreneur, but I'm not really sure what's going on with him. The campaign finance board allowed him to sort of forgive his own loans to himself to make the monetary qualification for the debate in a little bit of a strange move. But then the sponsors had to invite him because he's not a participant in the matching funds program. And the sponsors were like, you're not really campaigning. Um, It's a strange situation. My instinct is there should be more people on the debate stage, not fewer. Um, But it's sort of hard to tell how serious this guy is. Right. It's not an easy case. I remember several years ago, one of the Pataki elections, they had this debate where they had like 14 people on stage, including like a you know, a person who was involved in the sex trade and a marijuana person. And it was very interesting and engaging, but there wasn't a lot of time to, like, hold the governor accountable. So the media sponsors have to, like, make that balance, right? The thing is that the CFB schedule allows for sort of a a, a kind of everybody come to the table debate and then a leading candidates debate, which I think kind of shapes that tension correctly. Um, I did ask the candidates who are not going to be in the debate, uh, Bob Ganji, uh, Richard Bashner and Mike Tolkien, if they were there and they had the chance, as sometimes debate participants do, to ask a question of another candidate, what it would be. Uh, Ganji said that uh, he would ask about uh, broken windows policing, 
Um, was Shocking. Un un yes, <laughs> undeniably starkly yes. racially biased, inflicting harm and hardship on low-income New Yorkers of color every day. What step would you take as mayor to end abusive and discriminatory, discriminatory policing in our great city? And that's one that he would direct both to Sal Albanese and to Bill de Blasio because Albanese is supportive of of some of those same uh, policing measures, m more so than the mayor in some cases. And Tolkien said that he would ask about the um, the debate itself. Confident leaders don't need to silence opposition, Mr. Mayor. They embrace it. Uh, if you're so confident that your record speaks for itself, then why won't you engage new voices, elevate new ideas, and engage all of your opponents in a debate? Mr. Bashner didn't respond. So here's the funny thing, is that if I'm Bill de Blasio, I'd want more candidates up there. So I, I think he, I don't think that he wanted to really step into the firestorm of saying, yeah, more people should be invited. And then you have Sal Albany saying, the mayor doesn't want to face me one-on-one. -on -one. And, pe you know, right. he, I think the mayor tried to just stay out of it. Even though he did sign this law last year, we wrote about this, about raising the th financial threshold, which was a recommendation from the CFB. Uh, but that really made the difference here. It did. Yeah, yeah and I think you're right. I mean, one-on-one -on -one is probably the thing he did not want. Especially what if, with Sal. With Sal, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I uh, think, yeah, go, go ahead. So if you were uh, on the stage tomorrow, what's a question that you would ask? Well, I think, I mean, I think the mayor has to reckon with some of these signs of management troubles. Um, I think, you know, there's there's this knock on him as not the most hands-on, as traveling too much and things like that. And he points to, look at the results. Crimes down, jobs are up, school scores are up, you know, things like that, right? More affordable housing, pre-K. But the budget has grown really quickly. Uh, it's up like 17 or 18 percent in the mayor's term, up to eight, about 85 billion. Um, obviously, he's admitted to the homelessness situation not being addressed to the extent that he thought it would or wanted to. Um, you know, I think I think that's one thing I would ask him is explain, describe how you've been managing the city and what you need to do better if you deserve another term. That's a great question. I think I would ask him about, I'd go back to 2013 and the income inequality theme. And, you know, there have been successes in his mayoralty, but does he feel he's made a dent in that? And if so, how does he measure that? How does he want to be measured on his second term? You know, does he does he feel that progress has been made and what more needs to occur? when his mayoralty is done, how are we to assess whether he has really changed that kind of central galvanizing critique or problem that, that really motivated his come from behind victory four years ago? Yeah, that's a great one too. I mean, I think, I think one really interesting thing for him is he's, you know, they've pivoted from this uh, fixing the tale of two cities to this your city theme that it's about affordability and it's about being able to stay in the city you you work in and you've grown up in and being able to afford a reasonable house or apartment based on you know a decent paying job and that's where they want to create some new middle class jobs and the affordable housing plan and things like that um, you know but I think he's gotten a little bit away from some of that frame because reducing you know, at least income inequality is, is very, very challenging. So if you're in the mayor's corner tomorrow, um, to, to continue the boxing metaphor, mm -hmm. what's the strategy, what's the advice you give to de Blasio? You know, I don't, I think he's probably got this, um, you know, in spades and doesn't even need it, but, um, well, f what I would say actually, what he doesn't have in spades, I, you know, I would say that he needs to really come across as 
mayoral understanding that what New Yorkers are going through, not holier than thou, not condescending, not some of the ways that he can come across sometimes stylistically that turn people off. Um, he needs to be somewhat humble. I think he needs to be willing to address mistakes that he's made. You know, if he gets a question of what are the key mistakes of your term, he shouldn't try to just like, oh, I make mistakes all the time and then pivot to some accomplishments. You know, mm -hmm. he needs to really be real with New Yorkers. And I think that's like sort of at the essence of a lack of enthusiasm for him that I think is out there and that Albanese talks about, um, you know, is that people want a, a better sense of this guy as like a real guy, not someone who's sort of professorial and, and a political spin doctor. What yeah, you, I think I think there's yeah. a bigger picture there, and I think that is part of the advice I'd give to Albanese if I were in his corner, which is he has to, I think, resist the temptation, which is that he has nothing to lose, and he should just throw haymakers um, left and right. Because I feel as though if Sal comes off as the angry man, um, not only will it not help his campaign, but, you know, he had a, a very good career in the city council, um, several, you know, a very good run for mayor in 97, and I feel like, um, you know, he has to think not just about September 12th or even November 7th, but his overall reputation as a you know, reform-minded, blue-collar, progressive Democrat that he, he always was. And maybe not to just, because, you know, he could just try to force de Blasio into a mistake. Uh, that might hurt de Blasio, but it could end up hurting Albanese more. So I hope he keeps an eye on kind of the bigger picture. That's interesting. I mean, I think New York One did a really good two-minute segment on Albanese, on his career. And I was like, oh, yeah, there's some good footage from when he was, you know, sort of railing in the city council as a reformer. And he had, he does have that reputation. More recently, people remember him from 2013. He struggled to get off the ground. He was always railing against de Blasio, which was interesting. Um, so I think that's a good point. You know, in the in the preview piece that I wrote, he actually recognized that. He said, I don't, you know, I, I was asking him questions about how he'll approach. Will he interrupt de Blasio if he doesn't feel like the mayor is saying? But, and he said, you know, you don't want to come across as a raving lunatic. So he, he's sort of aware of that uh, potential pitfall. Should Albanese be worried about, or should anybody be worried about, uh, even if Albanese doesn't score enough points to win on September 12th, creating um, uh, paths of attack that Maliotakis, Nicole Maliotakis, the Republican nominee, um, can exploit? I mean, is that part of what this debate is, sort of setting up lines and people being able to scout where de Blasio is weak? Maybe. I mean, I think Albanese and Malitakis are already talking about a lot of the same things. I don't know that there's going to be like a new front opened up. Um, if the mayor makes some big mistake, you know, but still survives the primary, is there something for her to pick up on? Maybe. Um, I don't know that I, I really see that. I think the biggest thing that any of these opponents have to do is really figure out how they can sell their vision. I mean, part of the problem I think even with Maliotakis's campaign is that it's too negative um, and that she's not giving the media really more to latch onto to help her promote her ideas. She has to get her name and her word out there. So I'm not sure about that. And I frankly don't think Sal cares about that. Um, what do you think, though? I, don't, I, mean, I could be wrong. <laughs> I don't think it's on the top of his mind uh, yeah. either. Um, so uh, lastly, how do you plan to cover this, this thing? Well, I mean, I think... You know, um, you want to look at both what are the key substantive disagreements. We have to do that. You know, even if folks think this is sort of a runaway, I think you have to look at the substance of the of the debate. Um, and then I do think you want to look at some of the style of the debate, who's coming across as a leader. Um, and I think that that's key to it. How about you? 
Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously, some fact-checking will be there. Um, and, you know, I'd like to get a sense, if possible, which is going to be difficult if you're in the room, you know, to what extent are people paying attention to this? And are there, are there undecided voters out there um, decided whether they're going to vote at all, who they're going to vote for? Will this matter? You know, I think it, it should matter. It, it does matter. Um, but one thing I would love to get a sense of, I don't know if I'll be able to, is to what extent this has a, a, an impact on the race sort of that, that evening. And I've been watching the media too, because a lot of this, obviously most folks who will be affected by this debate, if it has any effect, won't be people who sit there for the entire start to finish, the folks who see the snippets and sound bites the next day. Yep. So figuring out how it gets carved up, what the storylines are, that's kind of the fascinating part of seeing how that evolves. I think one of the biggest things you hit on is is sort of this idea of, will Sal Albany still be described in every story as sort of like this non-shot or long-shot opposition, or will we be taken more seriously coming out of this? You know? Right. And this is his chance to do that. This is his, right now, his, his best, if not his last chance uh, to do that. Uh, I should also mention, you'll be moderating uh, some debates of your own this week. Yeah, I'm uh, uh, continuing to you know moderate some city council debates, which is fun. Uh, get to go around to different districts in the city and and also prepare for them by getting to know the candidates and the issues better. Um, looking at uh, you know moderating debates for Melissa Mark Viverito's seat in East Harlem in the South Bronx. I'm doing a Central Brooklyn city council district, uh, a couple other Manhattan districts. So having a lot of fun with that. What are you looking at at city limits? Uh, a lot of coverage of the races. Uh, we have several articles going forward. You know, it's funny, this election year has become more interesting than I thought it would be uh, because of a few incumbents who seem to be in good races and because of a few seats that have opened up that we didn't think were. Um, and the mayoral race, I think, is, is going to be more interesting than, than folks predicted it would be a few months ago. So we're, yeah. we're into it. And, the, and, the, and, you know, people should remember that the key date for so many of these is September 12th because the Democratic primary determines so much. Maybe not the mayoral race, but, but certainly a lot of these city council races and, of course, the Brooklyn DA race, which is a, a big one of this cycle. Right. So enjoy your uh, Wednesday viewing.